all the bad stuff, the feeling of discontent that or, or dissatisfaction that comes when you can't do it how you want to do it is completely necessary. And then when you get old enough, you realize you have to write the bad songs to write the good songs. Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape for your free audiobook. Hey everybody, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Midlife Mixtape Podcast. Today's show includes some bonus music that supersizes things, so I'm going to keep my introductions short and sweet. In two decades on the road, Jeffrey Foucault has become one of the most distinctive voices in American music, refining a sound instantly recognizable for its simplicity and emotional power, a decidedly Midwestern amalgam of blues, country, rock and roll, and folk. He's built a brick-and-mortar international touring career on multiple studio albums, countless miles, and general critical acclaim. Blood Brothers, his new album, which releases on June 22nd, is the sixth collection of original songs in a career remarkable for an unrelenting dedication to craft and independence from trend. You'll hear a couple tracks from that album on today's show. Full disclosure, Jeffrey is also one of my favorite performers to see play live, and I know from subscribing to his newsletter and supporting his crowdsourced music campaigns over the years that he is a troubadour in the cowboy poet vein. He's really a beautiful writer. And I knew he'd have a distinctive and thoughtful take on the creative process and how it works once you're 10 or 12 albums into a career. So let's pull back the curtain on Jeffrey Foucault. So I'm here today with singer-songwriter Jeffrey Foucault. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I know that doing marketing promotion isn't your very favorite thing to do, so I am very grateful that you're going to let me talk about Blood Brothers and your music career. But, you know, we always start the Midlife Mixtape podcast with one very important question, which is what was your first concert and what were the circumstances? I definitely remember attending a trumpet recital that my dad took me to at the university when I was a kid. And I think that was probably the first formal concert experience that I can remember but then in terms of like actual popular music I remember seeing various acts at Summerfest when I was a little kid which is the big summer festival in uh, Milwaukee on the lake Mm -hmm. my dad grew up in Milwaukee and my grandparents lived there and so we would go most summers and I, I I do remember Crosby Stills and Nash when I was pretty little um and I don't know if Neil Young was playing with them. That's the sort of thing that I would care about now. But I, I, uh, <laughs> I certainly had no idea at the, at the time. Well, as someone who performs at all different kinds of venues, I'm, I've seen you um, at a couple of house concerts. I've seen you at Lincoln Hall in Chicago. Um, I know you've played outdoor festivals. What's your favorite kind of venue to play? What's your favorite kind of a gig? If you had to pick one. Well, at this point, I've 
decided that what we do, or, you know, when I say we, it's almost always, or rather really, it's always Billy and I, it's a, it's a rarity that I go out and do anything solo at this point. But what, That's Billy Conway. Yeah. That's Billy Conway. Right. Everybody. Billy Conway on the drums, who uh, rose to fame as a drummer for a band called Morphine, that was pretty world famous in the 90s. And then before that, he was in a band called Treat or Write. One of my very favorite bands. I yeah. love that band. We decided that what we do really sort of thrives on four walls and darkness. And so any room that satisfies those criteria is going to work out fine. I really prefer a room that's smaller than 200 seats because um, that's where the connection is easiest to make. But the connection is 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 uh, amorphous in the sense that what really matters is the sort of proxemic of the room and the, the feeling of uh, connection between you know the people on stage and the people in the audience. And every room has this different magic number where you can have a minimum number of people and still get that feeling, which is basically like an emotional or energetic feedback loop, you know, like you give it out and people give it back to you. And um, a room that's, you know, if you're, if you're too small in a big old airplane hangar of a room, uh, it can be difficult to create that create that loop. And I know from your uh, newsletters that go with, with your recent pledge music campaign that you just played a jail. What was that like? I've done that done that a number of times. One of the difficult things about traveling for a living is that nobody asks you to do anything anymore. Like when I lived back in the Midwest in Wisconsin, it was rare that a week went by that somebody didn't call me and ask me to bring my truck somewhere and help move something or, uh, you know, go screw around fixing cars with one of my brothers or my brother's brother-in-law, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, uh, or my dad would call and he'd say, you know, I'm going to take this branch down on a tree and I need help. And helping is a pretty human thing and everybody feels better when they do it. And it, it's, uh, gets eliminated from your life when nobody expects you to ever be around. The truth is I'm only gone about one out of every three days if you average it out, but that's just enough for people to sort of give up on you. So I, my wife and my daughter, you know, will go down to the nearest uh, town of any size and they'll, they volunteer at a soup kitchen down there and I'm never home when that happens. So playing in prisons is a pretty direct way to do something um, useful as far as I can tell. We have more people in prison in the United States right now than have ever been uh, in prison anywhere at any given time in the history of the world. So it's it's an almost forgotten sector of the public. And, you know, these are still human beings and citizens and stuff. So, you know, to go into a space like that and make a point of looking those guys in the eye and being willing to shake hands and just make a very human connection, which is, I mean, that's what music is. It's frightening because it's a really vulnerable vulnerable thing to do to open your mouth and sing to people. Or at least if you're doing it right, it, it has to be vulnerable. If you if you try to arm yourself too far, then you eliminate the opportunity to connect with people. So, you know, there I am standing in the gymnasium. There's a bunch of guys in blue folding chairs. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they wander in. They kind of they play it pretty cool on the front end. And then I just play songs. I mean, you, you're going through your head trying to figure out what songs that you wrote and what songs other people wrote these guys would want to hear. I mean, you know, some of them are Mexican guys that probably 
maybe are more familiar with either rap or Tejano or Conjunto music than they are with the kind of stuff that I do. Mm-hmm. Some of these guys, you know, whatever, there are various other minorities represented. And then there's, you know, there's a few guys. There's one guy got all excited because I did a song that he knew from a Grateful Dead record um, that was an old traditional, you know, song. And I, I find that those old songs, like Sitting on Top of the World, those are the kind of songs that people respond to. I mean, these are people that are in a, a really difficult situation and they've, by definition and by necessity, they've had to compress the spectrum of their emotional life. Mm-hmm. just you know to be guarded or whatever but even within that guardedness my experience of singing to people behind bars is that there's a little narrow window that you can thread and you can tell when you do and then you know they all want to come up and talk you know before you get escorted out of the <laughs> escorted out of the building by somebody with a gun it's a, it's a weird gig you know so the ability to get transported a little bit i'm sure that means a lot yeah there there have been different historical periods of incarceration in the United States and you know the idea that you would try to reform people was paramount at various times in our history and then that went away and now we sort of you know it's part of the military industrial university congressional prison industrial complex and that's frightening you know that's we outsource warehousing people and there's you know there are incentives to keep them locked up and i think that's difficult and ugly so anything you can do to help out even you know and the truth is i've written to various jails i wrote to the one near where i live and i couldn't get anybody to respond to me so i mean it's not like uh obviously they have other things on their mind other than bringing (laughs) folk singers into their (laughs) their their concert schedule yeah exactly You know, I want to pivot over and talk about the new album. So you've got a new album dropping this week. And I know from being one of your Pledge Music supporters that both your mother and your mother-in-law liked it. So you're off to a rollicking start already, right? I mean, you've got the... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the truth is my mom wouldn't tell me she liked it if she didn't like it. She wouldn't say (laughs) anything. And uh, there have been records. I mean, I made a couple of full rock band records with an outfit called Cold Satellite where I was collaborating with a modern poet and uh modern i just mean contemporary not not in the formal sense of modern but uh i know that she didn't particularly enjoy those records <laughs> and she because she, she never, told you so <laughs> yeah i mean she didn't she just didn't say one way or the other which is usually a pretty good indicator and my I, and my mother-in-law um would perhaps uh tell me she liked it regardless but i i choose to believe that she actually enjoyed it well, and she's got a vested interest because her daughter, the lovely Chris Delmhorst, who is a talented musician in her own right, I know is one of the vocalists on the record. And uh, I wanted to ask about how, first of all, I was trying to figure out what number album this was for you. And I just gave up because you've got <laughs> all kinds of solo projects and Cold Satellite and, and everything else. But what was the impetus for getting in the studio and recording Blood Brothers? And talk a little bit about that process because it was kind of quick. It was quick. Um, every recording experience takes on a life of its own and a kind of pathology of its own. And you never know if it's going to be easy for no apparent reason or difficult for no apparent reason or what or why. And I went into this one thinking that I didn't want to repeat myself uh, in terms of the experience or the or the approach to recording. 
I'm always leery of trying to replicate an experience and, and recording the, the record prior, which was called Salt is Wolves, and that was that came out in 15. And we worked at a at Pachyderm Studio south of Minneapolis, which is this old, uh, it's a rural environment, but a beautiful old um, multi-split level kind of weird mansion-y house uh, built into the uh, limestone or sandstone, I guess, uh, bluffs of a small creek. And uh, it's really, you know, it's a beautiful place, a separate studio and building. We had worked there. We had worked live. And we had worked mostly all in one room trying to record what was essentially like a blues combo record using the live approach. Um, Not rehearsing the tunes per se, but just, what we call learn and burn, you know, like I'd, I'd sent some demos to the band, they'd heard them, they knew what key we were going to probably approach in. And then, you know, you sit down and you figure it out. And then you make your arrangements on the fly. Billy's fond of finding the little troubleshooting spots and tunes running through them. You can usually trim a little bit of fat off and by the third take or so you either have it or you don't and then you move on. So we had, we had done that and I didn't want to do it again. And I, and I was trying to figure out what I would do instead. So I had started trying to figure out what tunes I was going to bring into the studio, and I had a little list going in a book somewhere. And I decided I'd been in touch with Kelly Joe Phelps, who is one of my favorite songwriters and one of the best guitar players uh, in the world, full stop. And I saw that his tour schedule was empty, and I, I knew he'd had some trouble with his wrist, and I was worried about him. So I got in touch, and sure enough, he had just got tired of the shuck and jive routine, you know, like, at this point in the music business, you're more or less required to to both be an authentic human being and then, or hopefully, uh, and then to play the part of an authentic human being for public consumption on the internet ad nauseum. I mean, day in and day out, you're supposed to be posting mindless stuff or, you know, and at some point you have to wonder like what it does to your mind and your soul. So Kelly had enough. He was, he was done with that stuff and he stopped playing. He went home. He was taking care of his mom out west. I asked him if he wanted to work on a record, and he said, yeah. So it was the plan was going to be two acoustic guitars, two steel body resonator guitars, and Billy on drums. And then the day I was going to book him a flight, and I'd already put the deposit in to hold the studio, I woke up and I had a bad feeling. And I called him, and I said, you know, I'm just about to book your flight, and if there's any reason that you don't feel like you want to make this record, you better holler at me. And uh, sure enough, he was he was feeling like he he needed to bow out. There, he had a bunch of stuff going on, and his mom was sick, and um, things were getting more complex in his life. So there's just a bunch of reasons. But uh, so I had to double back, and now I had about six weeks until I had to go in the studio. You had the studio, and you had Billy, and you had to figure out what else you needed. Yeah, and so I was able to call Bo Ramsey, who I'd worked with on the prior record, and I said, "All right, this isn't going to be a, a blues." approach this is said i'll probably end up camped out in the iso booth and and we're gonna this is gonna be a little bit more ballad heavy record i think and less blues and uh and we had wanted to to bring in eric haywood the pedal steel player who i've worked with for the last 12 years and he was on tour he's in the pretenders when the pretenders go out which he never knows when that's going to be because chrissy hind is kind of nuts so we weren't going to be able to do that. So we we're going to, I was like, all right, well, this is, you know, I tried to do this other thing. And now the universe is redirecting me to go
go back to Pachyderm and use the same band. All right, let's do it. So I wrote a whole pile of songs, and then about a week before we went in the studio, uh, Chrissy Hine lost her voice, and the Pretenders had to cancel the last few shows. And it turned out that Eric was going to be done with his tour in Minneapolis the night before we started our recording 40 minutes south of there. So it just worked out. We were able to grab Eric and... Uh, Essentially, the, when I would go out full band the last few years, it would either be Bo Ramsey playing leads on electric guitar or it would be Eric Haywood playing pedal steel and electric guitar as the lead player. Uh, so two different versions of, of a quartet. And we sort of blended those two quartets and made this quintet where both Bo and Eric are playing, which was cool. I mean, it was really complicated when you're a lead player and you haven't talked about arrangements. What you end up with is two guys who are, you know, sort of holding the door open for each other all the time. After you, no, after you, no, after you. So you want somebody to take the damn solo and everybody's like laying in the weeds. So it took a day to get that sorted out. And then all the politeness seemed to evaporate and they started really playing together in this beautiful way where they sort of hand it back and forth. It, it did end up being a slightly more ballady record and a little brighter record in, uh, this is a little more introspective. It sort of exists in the place where where your mind goes when you're driving down the highway and you're you know, you got the record on and you sort of go into that daydreamy reverie space and that's that's what that's where this record sort of ended up living. And you recorded it in what, three days? That's how we do it, yeah. The old way of making records was to get people who are really good and go into the studio for a very brief time and get a document of the thing that you do. Uh, it really wasn't until sort of the Baroque period of, of rock and roll <laughs> that you ended up seeing people take these massive label advances and go off for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and, weeks and you know, spend the first three days getting drum sounds, you know, right. like that that kind of nonsense has never been my style. So I, I just, um, you know, if you've got players that you know are, are good enough that they can turn in a great performance on the fly, you're going to get stuff that there's no other way to get by playing songs that you don't even know yet. Well, let's listen to what I consider an upbeat little ditty about the coming end of the world. This is War on the Radio. Just like
Jeffrey, what do you wish people understood about supporting live music and musicians in 2018? It's a complicated story when you get into the history of recorded music and how artists historically got paid for their performances and their intellectual property and then how they didn't. And there are both of those things uh, in abundant evidence over the course of time. What people... um, need to know right now is that the technology of the digital economy has changed the landscape for musicians and made it much harder to make a living. We're in a weird window where people are no longer buying very many albums. They tend to buy them at live shows, more or less as souvenirs, as an, maybe an opportunity to go up and you know shake somebody's hand and and say hi and talk to them for a second or get it signed or that sort of thing. It's a, at that point, it becomes sort of a social artifact. Uh, and then people buy albums when they're trying to support somebody because they, it's been explained to them that it really helps if you buy the album because it makes them uh, liquid enough in terms of capital to be able to afford their very expensive habit of being on tour with a band, which is no light ticket. So while people are no longer buying records, uh, the technologies that deliver music to people have become so widespread in terms of economy of scale that all you really need is a computer and an internet connection and you can have access to all the recorded music or damn near all the recorded music of the last 100 plus years. And if you do the math and you are paying nine ninety nine per month for access to all of the recorded music uh, throughout time, you need to divide your nine ninety nine between everybody that ever made a record and released it to the public. And that's doesn't take uh, a great numbers genius to figure out that that's not going to work out for the people who made the music because there's just too many of us. So it used to be that we were paid based on 
the number of of albums that were sold and then people who wrote songs say uh say I wrote a song and it got covered by somebody who was famous I'd get nine and a half cents for every physical copy that was printed mm-hmm. well nobody buys records anymore or 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 really just a just a, a small fraction comparatively. I mean, it used to be if you sold 100,000 records, that might get you kicked off a record label because it wasn't enough. Now, if you sell 100,000 records, you are outselling almost everybody in the industry. We're talking about physical, right. actual album CDs, right, or vinyl. So that means if, you know, if the person who covered your song doesn't sell very many records, then, then you also don't get paid there, you know. It used to be if somebody like... Uh, Bonnie Raitt put your song on a record. You'd go buy a house in cash and put a put a swimming pool in. And I'm not kidding. It was that it was that kind of money because they were selling millions of records, and that was that was the economy of scale in the 60s and 70s and 80s. That's really changed now, and because the technology is ascending that delivers to music to people so easily, and they don't have to own it, people don't realize that their money doesn't go that far if you ask people like how much do you think somebody makes every time you stream their song they're gonna say oh, i don't know a penny because that seems fair doesn't it but if i was making a penny i'd pay my mortgage out of hand just on spotify right right with a hundred th- plus thousand unique listeners a month so i don't need to make a penny i would like to make a penny that'd be neat but you're I can't not averse make- to making a penny let's make <laughs> right. that clear spotify but i can't make a penny i can't make three decimal places away from a penny Right. And uh, and that, because it just doesn't add up, you know, you'd have to listen to my song hundreds of thousands of times on on the streaming services in order to make me the same amount of money that if you just kick me 20 bucks right. <laughs> uh, at a live show to buy a record and walk off with it. So finding ways to support people who create music and any other kind of art, you're going to have to be sort of resourceful. Um, I mean... Streaming services, that, that horse left the barn already, and that's okay. The, the thing to remember and the thing that I always am impressed by is that people actually really want to pay for music. They go out of their way to join these fundraising campaigns and support people directly. And I can't tell you the number of times somebody's, you know, slips folding money in my hand at the end of a show just because they figure they'd like to help pay the next tank of gas or whatever. And the, the thing that I run into the most difficulty with is that there are, uh, you know, 100,000 people maybe spread around the United States, sort of very, very wide and very thin, like a, like about an inch of water. <laughs> and uh, I would really like to be able to tell those people when I'm coming to where they live, but there's no way for me to do it except to pay massive corporations that are manipulating their information, you know, and that I find that a little bit discouraging. Well, there is one mechanism, which is that you guys can go to Jeffrey's website, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, but it's jeffreyfocult.com, and you can sign up for his mailing list. And that is as good a guarantee as you're going to get that you'll find out when Jeffrey's coming to your town. And you've got some Midwest dates coming up, right? I do. I do. We're going we're gonna to start full band outside of Madison, Wisconsin, uh, a little rural show that one has actually been sold out for quite a while because it's not not a very big spot it's an old tobacco barn it's a sweet place to play but we're going to do chicago at the city winery in june we're going to do um the dakota jazz club in minneapolis we're going to do the mill in iowa city and uh we're going to have gigs in milwaukee and sioux Falls, south dakota and a few other a few other along the way and all that stuff obviously is at my tour page and there's always links to the uh 
to the gigs and hopefully links to to the tickets and all that sort of thing. We'll come back out to the Bay Area soon too. We need you back at the Rosecrest Supper Club. Yeah, we'll we'll be back in uh, we'll be in California in November, the first half. Cool. We just haven't released all the dates yet because the tours aren't completed. But. All right. So I saw a quote from you where you said, my whole job is to tell the truth and make it rhyme. And what I want to know is how does being in the middle phase of life inform how you approach that job? Now, I know I'm stretching to call you middle-aged, but let's play along. Well, tell the truth and, and, and make it rhyme. You know, I should qualify that just by saying that I, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm telling the literal, actual, linear, narrative truth um, I think truth is a, is a relative term when you're talking about people who make art, you know, poem, sculpture, painting, novel, uh, or a song. You're trying to tell something that is true. And when you say that it's true, it means that the greater part of the bell curve of human perception is going to find that thing that you put out there resonant. Well, that's, a, you know, that's, that's the question. Does it feel true? Is it compelling? And why? That's that's the big question. Um, the truth is almost never the the actual truth is 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 rarely <laughs> particularly interesting, uh, although it can be. And sometimes there are songs where really you do just look around and make stuff rhyme and ho- and it and it works out. It's the difference between it's the difference between honesty and truth, right? I think well, as a writer, I see those as two related but not necessarily identical things. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah no, the the truth doesn't have to be true. I mean, that if that I don't want to sound like a Bill Clinton or something, but the, <laughs> you know, get into the metaphysics of truth. But the, that um, when we're talking about art as opposed to uh, uh, perjury, then the truth doesn't necessarily have to be true. Right. It just has to feel true. And I know, you know, I was raised to believe that squishy constructions like that were suspect, and I still do. But uh, I also believe that the good art succeeds. When, when you're telling the truth and there's a very broad uh, there's a very broad definition of what that means anyway to answer your question after all this uh, uh, verbal it's the debate portion of the podcast it's okay <laughs> yeah no I uh, I think when you make your first record you feel as though you've accomplished something that seemed really far-fetched I mean it, there's a there's a genuine leap of ego to be the person who says, I've got something on my mind that other people are going to want to hear, mm-hmm. right? And so just to decide that you you know, are a songwriter, I'm going to write a song. Like anything else in American life, the only way to be something is to start saying that you are and then backfill the details. <laughs> and uh, that's, you know, that's certainly what I did. I, I kept writing songs until it felt like they were real songs. And, you know, the first few, you feel like you're just impersonating a songwriter, which you are. Uh, and as it goes along, the impersonation begin, becomes the true thing, which is um, an experience that gets recapitulated over the course of a career. You make a record and you feel like you just played uh, an entire concert on the violin with one arm. You know, like it might not have been very good, but you got it. You did it right. And it feels like you will never do it again. Mm-hmm. Like there's I don't think I could ever make a second record. And then you make a second record and then. Pretty soon you're 10 or 12 records into your career and you stop worrying about the kind of stuff that you worried about before. Like when it dries up and you feel like you don't have anything to write about or that what you're writing isn't good or that you aren't able to play the way that you want to play, all the bad stuff, the feeling of discontent that 
or, or dissatisfaction that comes when you can't do it how you want to do it is completely necessary. And then when you get old enough, you realize you have to write the bad songs to write the good songs, or you have to, you know, you have to play in a way that you don't want to play to get to where you can play. You have to, you have to move through experiences. You don't, there's no shortcut. Mm -hmm. So it makes you more patient and uh, it makes you more forgiving. I think of your own stuff. The older I get, the less interested I am in what I know how to do. I mean, I could write you a song, uh, you know, if I was a Nashville publishing house songwriter and you said, write a song about, you know, pickup trucks and, and cold beer and Friday night and uh, and Merle Haggard, you know, the kind of stuff you tend to hear on country radio right now. Uh, I could do it. It might not be very good because I wouldn't care that much probably, but that's not interesting to me. What is interesting is when a, a, a phrase or a uh, piece of language gets coughed up by my brain and I have no idea where it came from or what it means. That's fascinating. And then I, I'll write that down. And that's a good beachhead for working on something else. And I tend to be more trusting of that stuff now than I was when I was younger. And I tend to be more willing to compost my own material in the sense that if a song doesn't work now, there's a chance it's going to work five years from now mm -hmm. and you aren't ready to play it. So put it away and see what happens, you know. So I, I have books and books and books, like notebooks full of stuff, and 70% of what's in a given book might end up on a record or the next record, and 30% might end up on a record to two collections down the line. Right. And, you know, when you're thinking in terms of a body of work, that's, that's perfectly reasonable. All right, so last question. What one piece of advice do you have for people younger than you, or do you wish you could go back and tell yourself? <laughs> Besides buy Apple stock. I, yeah. I didn't have any money to buy stock when I was my younger self. I remember driving around in my truck and listening to a public radio television program, or a radio program, rather. They were interviewing a guy who wrote a book about the correlation between money and happiness, and he was describing, you know, the various diseases of affluence that people suffer from when they have too much money, and he was curious about whether or not, you know, a certain amount of money equated to a certain amount of happiness. And so the, the interviewer asked him, was there an amount of money, uh, his findings, and it shouldn't surprise anybody, was that the more money you had, uh, the distinctly less happy people got. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the interviewer thought about that for a minute and then said, you know, is there, a, is there an amount of money a person can make, like a maximum amount they can make before they start to show signs of unhappiness related to their financial situation? He said, yeah, it's uh, uh, $12,000. <laughs> A year. <laughs> and I actually remember thinking, like, I have a $3,000 cushion of happiness right now. Because right? I was working all time in materials jobs, getting paid. I just keep track of my hours, you know, working on somebody's cottage, you know, repairing plaster, redoing the floors, painting, you know, fixing the trim, that sort of stuff. Uh, and I was perfectly, perfectly happy. But I was not buying stock. What I would say to my younger self is um, what I tell people when I, you know, I field a few emails and letters from people who are either going into this line of work or something like it, and they ask about it. And I, I give them some version of what Billy Conway used to deliver as the working musician lecture at Berklee College of Music in, in Boston. So he'd go down there and he'd give them this speech, and I can't do justice probably to the whole of it, but I can give you the basic mechanics. Um, you're going to need to be lucky and you're going to need to be talented and you're going to have to work really hard. Those are the three things that are involved. 
and you may succeed and you may not. And the trick and the sort of vitally important thing is when you look around and you realize that there are people just like you who are not very good and who don't work very hard but who are very lucky and they succeed and you see people who are not very good and they work really hard and they get a little bit lucky and they succeed, you are not allowed to get upset. You can't take it personally or become bitter about somebody else's manipulation of that of that triangle mm-hmm. because it doesn't have anything to do with you. It, what it has to be is enough. When you do what you do and you, and you do it well on any given night, uh, or you know, with an album or whatever, that, that has to be enough. You're out there to please yourself, and if you are thinking in terms of some ex- external metric, you will eventually be unhappy, and you're probably in the wrong line of work. Isn't there a phrase like "comparison is the death of happiness"? Something like that. I haven't heard that phrase, but I, that makes a certain amount of sense. Maybe I just made it up. Yeah, exactly. You coined a phrase. <laughs> Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much for being on the show today. Everybody, Blood Brothers drops on June 22nd. And on our way out, I'm going to play you the title track from the album. So Jeffrey Focalt, I'm going to spell it for you guys in case you want to go check out his website. It's Jeffrey the regular way, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-F-O-U-C-A-U-L-T.com. So make sure to go over and check it out. Get on his mailing list. Check him out in person. And uh, Jeffrey, thanks so much for being on the show. Hope to see you soon. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking to you. If I saw you, would you know my name? If I saw
sometimes I hold you in my dreams at night. I never told you that I was right. I'll meet you somewhere on the other side. That was Blood Brothers, the title track from Jeffrey's new album. You can find it at jeffreyfocult.com and keep an eye on tour dates so you can see him play in person. You heard in our interview just how much that means to a touring musician. And you know, you can always reach me via email at dj at midlifemixtape.com or find me on social media at midlifemixtape. I hope you guys enjoyed this supersized serving of beautiful music in today's episode. Until next time. I wanna be, I wanna be free by